Thursday, November 13th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser. Happy Thursday. Howdy. I like it's, your shirt, by the way. Thank you. It's, uh, it's making me kind of antsy. <laughs> antsy? <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's it's just a uh, what a, a long sleeve t shirt with the Woodford Reserve logo on it. So if that gives you an idea of how you should <laughs> cap off your evening, hey, so be it. Uh, we will dip into the full mailbag, but uh, this is one of those days when the news fairy showed up and and sprinkled some dust <laughs> in the form of DreamWorks Animation. Reportedly, in merger talks or to be acquired talks with Hasbro. And if this sounds familiar, that's because it was about six weeks ago that the story of the day was SoftBank in Japan was reportedly kicking the tires of DreamWorks Animation. Stock, I believe, finished up 26% that day and then in the subsequent weeks gave back all of those gains. Today, shares up about 13 14% on this news. I would be remiss if I did not mention the shares of Hasbro, <laughs> down more than 4%. Yeah. Uh, first, if you're a DreamWorks shareholder, you're having a good day. Does this deal make sense? Well, I mean, so I, I think, yes, it does. I mean, you're sitting here looking at two businesses that... Um, are, are facing some some difficult markets in in uh, they're they're having to sort of really pivot and change uh, quickly. Hasbro certainly is uh, facing this this sort of evolving toy market where toys are living much shorter lives now, physical toys at least, and, and we're we're in much more of a technology driven world, a digital age than than we were even just ten years ago. Um, and, and then you have DreamWorks, which has just seemed to they seem to perpetually just be compared to Disney, and in ten times out of ten, they're going to lose that battle, right? I mean, it's just something yeah, that eight times out maybe of maybe nine times out of ten. Shrek, I don't know. I mean, but if you look at the financial success of things like Shrek and Madagascar, oh yeah, you know, it's not it's not to say that they haven't had their share of decent pictures. I mean, they've they've been able to put out a, a few uh, good good pictures, and and yeah, Shrek and, and other properties have, have served them well through the years, but. But they are. It's it's just an inherently lumpy business because it's solely focused on that movie, uh, on that movie business. It was just it's just inherently lumpy, and it's really difficult. Um, and and they are just constantly going up against just phenomenal competition in Walt Disney every every season of every year. Uh, so I, I think the big winners here would be shareholders in DreamWorks, uh, Hasbro. You know this. It's interesting because they have their own movie studio, studio that they just really started uh, developing here, and so I, I think this gives them maybe another another collection of properties that they could probably do very well with. And what I mean by that is with DreamWorks, you know, not only has DreamWorks done a good job of at least recognizing uh, new distribution. It's not just movie theaters anymore, right? With streaming and the internet, I mean, they've they've really had to pivot and sort of get get new partners, and they've done that. They've they've uh, made multi-year agreements to deliver more than fifteen hundred half hours of programming to Netflix, a German-based uh, property called Super RTL, and then a, a European network called Planeta Junior. Uh, they also acquired Awesomeness TV, which I mean, just the name the name says it all, right? Good Actually brand. does does very well. Has more than eighty six thousand channels on YouTube and more than fifty two million subscribers. So it's not insignificant. I think that was probably a pretty shrewd acquisition on their part to to capture maybe uh, the younger audience. And so that's going to give Hasbro, I think, 
you know, access to, to sort of that side of that business. And DreamWorks has done, I think, a pretty good job of trying to make merchandising a more important part of their business as time goes on. And just to show you some of the numbers around that, in 2011, consumer products for DreamWorks as a percentage of sales, it was about 6% of sales. It was about $43 million they made. In 2013, though, it went up to 9.5% of sales. And so, I think that you can see they're trying to, to diversify their lines of business. Certainly, Hasbro is trying to figure out a way to play more into that content and digital uh, age that, that you know, is just really unavoidable at this point. Um, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this is financed. I mean, Hasbro has a pretty good slug of debt on the balance sheet already. This is not something they could just pay, uh, you know, an all cash deal. So th- there would be some uh, combination of debt and or equity to, to finance this, and, and nothing is is certain. Um, yeah, kind of interesting to see shares in DreamWorks have sort of traced down as the day has progressed. Right, it opened up about twenty. Twenty-one uh, percent up, and, and and ever since then it's just kind of uh, fallen. I'm not sure what the the market's saying there. If if this thing is, they don't believe it's going to happen or or what. But it, it certainly seems like the most plausible uh, deal uh, that we've heard rumor of yet. Just to put some more numbers around the size of the companies we're talking about, Hasbro market cap somewhere in the neighborhood of six point eight billion. So so you you just want to round that up to seven billion. DreamWorks Animation, to your point, that's about a $2.2 billion company. So, this this would be maybe not all that surprising that Hasbro shares ticking down a little bit when you just consider, wow, we're thinking about or reportedly going to acquire a company that is one-third our size. That's a, that's a huge acquisition on a percentage basis. But I am the, the one thing that surprises me a little bit about this is and you touched on this, is that DreamWorks really has, over the last few years, done a pretty good job of diversifying away from, if you just want to categorize it as, what is the money that DreamWorks Animation makes from movies, and what is everything else? And they're really evening that out to the point where, there was a New York Times story a couple months back that said, 2015, DreamWorks itself expects that in 2015, it's going to be about 50-50. Um, now, consumer products is obviously a, a, a slice of that pie, but it really does seem like I, I don't know. I, I don't know if there are people who are shareholders of DreamWorks Animation who are looking at this as a conviction stock, so they feel that passionately. But it but it does seem like they've been making the right moves, at least in terms of diversifying how they make their money. Yeah, there's no question there. I mean, and to be clear, I mean, this is a company that used to be significantly larger than it is today. I mean, the stock has really uh, had a pretty tough go of it these past few years. And I mean, rightfully so. Again, they have not done a very good job of, of diversifying the business. They've just been reliant on these movies, and, and not a lot of those movies have done all that well. Um, so, it, it is going to be interesting. It's going to give them this, this access to that Hasbro brand. I mean, Hasbro Mattel are just phenomenal companies in the sense that they have that brand they can just stamp on these toys and, and sell them all over the world. And, and so, while while toys are certainly living short, shorter lives, they still exist, and, and, and they still do very well. Uh, and, and so, for Hasbro to be able to take all those DreamWorks properties you know, and, and get that into their pipeline, I think that would be encouraging, uh, certainly for Hasbro and for DreamWorks. And I think that DreamWorks, this takes a little bit of the pressure off the company uh, to sit there and really say, okay, man, where is our next hit coming from? Because you know, they're producing maybe two to three movies a year at the most, and, and typically one of them ends up in, in a pretty sizey write down, which is never good. Uh, so again, I mean, I think that the consumer products side of the deal is is an interesting one, and and then also just the, the 
DreamWorks management recognizing that the world is, is a different place today and, and content is going out in many different ways. And, and it seems that they've, they've recognized that, they've addressed that, and, and they're going to where those eyeballs are. So, so that's a, a, good, you know, a good thing, too. Earlier this week, Twitter had an analyst day, hosted an analyst day. You've started to... An analyst marathon is what it sounded yeah, like. Yeah, I was going to say, what are the <laughs> last like seven, seven hours? Seven hours. <laughs> Well, that must have been riveting. Um, you've started to dig through the notes. What have you found so far? Yeah, it was. It was. So the analyst day was yesterday, and it was interesting to see how the stock sort of reacted as the day progressed. I think a lot of people, you know, they liked what they were hearing, and I, and I think that what you know, the big picture takeaway from this is, I think that management did a good job in communicating to us as investors the size of Twitter's audience beyond just the monthly active users that it reports and the timeline views metric uh, that, that, that it's used in the, in the you know, most recent quarters to sort of give us an idea of how the business is doing. Uh, we're going to see here in the coming quarters, uh, actually, timeline views is going to be a metric that they are going to phase out because it's running sort of counter to what they're trying to do with the pro- with with the platform and introducing these new products. It's not really uh, it's not really indicating the engagement that they feel uh, that applies here. So you're going to see impressions uh, as a metric they'll continue to uh, focus on, and it's it's basically a marriage of Twitter Twitter's information. Uh, and, and the information that they get from their syndicate partners, their platform partners that, that utilize their content uh, in all in all those various channels as well. And I mean, to put a number around that, I mean, they they created 185 billion impressions uh, last quarter. So, you know, you're going to see them, I think, tap that and saying, "Listen, we have 284 million monthly active users, but we go way beyond that. You know, we we reach people who don't use Twitter or log into Twitter." And, and that's true. I mean, you see tweets on TV, in the newspaper, on, on you know the websites and everything. And so uh, they they measure that that audience of, of sort of the logged out Twitter user as somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 million uh, monthly active users. And so I, th- I think the impressions metric is is meant to account for that to give a better understanding of how how wide an audience they reach and how wide of an audience they intend to reach. Um, we're going to see more products rolling out here very quickly. They're going to be phasing um, in these these new products called uh, Instant Timeline for new users, so that when you are a new user and you sign up for the service, you, you don't have to try to figure out how to use it and where who you want to follow and everything. It's it's going to give you a pretty good robust timeline based on interests that you've you've input there in, in the sign up. Um, you're going to see timeline highlights, which I think, to me personally, I think the timeline highlights will be a very important one for them to nail because it's it's essentially going to take for the user in Twitter who's who's you know been away for 12 hours hasn't checked in Twitter or whatever you're going to go back to to Twitter and it's going to tell you what's gone on in those past 12 hours that you missed the the most important things based on who you follow and what we know you like and so i think it it gives them a chance to extend that conversation and and stay relevant for a little bit longer because i mean that's been one of the i think that's been one of the the problems for Twitter is because it's so fast and so free flowing and so real time if if you're not on it all the time, you're, you're going to miss some stuff, you know. And and I think they're they're working to to uh, you know figure that out. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm optimistic they'll do it. I think they did a great job in bringing uh, Anthony Noto on as the CFO. He's uh, more than just a CFO. He used to work with Goldman Sachs. Um, he was the former global co-head of the global telecommunications media and tech group there. So he, he's 
gets what they do. Um, and, and he's, I think, beyond what maybe the traditional CFO might be. He's kind of like the assistant CFO or for you office fans out the uh, out there for the he's, he's the assistant to the CEO. <laughs> right. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I think it's an encouraging an encouraging analyst day that they had there. Uh, still plenty of uncertainty. I think the market recognizes that, but they're they're doing, I think, the right things. What about money as a metric? Was there any we like money? <laughs> uh, was there any discussion of how they're going to monetize? I mean, because I get what you're saying about, and and if I were them, I would probably make the same case. Like, look, we do actually reach more people than are just logged onto our service. But the flip side of that is, if someone's watching TV and tweets are being shown on the bottom of the screen of the whatever game they're watching. Twitter's not making money off of the person who's watching the TV. Right. So actually, you know, what the way Twitter is approaching this is because you're right. I mean, it doesn't seem like there would be necessarily a lot of value in all of those tweets that maybe scroll across the screen of the TV, but there is some value there. It's it's a process of what they call the strategy is called syndication essentially. Is what they're trying to figure out is ways to offer uh, more content for their platform partners. And so when you're watching a basketball game or something like that, and you see tweets uh, going across the TV screen, uh, that essentially, that, that platform provider is getting that content from Twitter. Twitter scene is also a content provider in, in that regard as well. And so one of the strategies that they're utilizing, you're trying to figure out uh, how to develop is that syndication strategy, uh, which admittedly is, is in the very early stages, but is something that they are certainly uh, targeting in in focusing on now because I think they see that beyond just sort of the advertising model that syndication model is is also a, a way that they'll be able to provide value for for their platform partners for uh, for the foreseeable future so yeah money money's always really the <laughs> bottom line there right and they've done a good job of growing sales no question there uh, they're just going to have to continue to bring that in quarter in and quarter out and the more we see that the more reliable that is I think the the more credibility they'll gain. You can follow us on Twitter, at MarketFoolery is our handle. Jason had written earlier today, he was digging into the 111-page transcript from Twitter's Analyst Day from Grant Tunkel on Twitter. Can we get a dramatic reading of that on today's MarketFoolery? <laughs> no. No. We thought about it, Grant, but, but we decided to really... Uh... <laughs> we didn't want to alienate anyone who listens. <laughs> To do a dramatic reading. Trying to get listeners, not lose Exactly. Uh, you can also email us. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Question from Marco Olivieri, self-identified as listener number nine. I was listening to another podcast, don't be jealous, and one of the commentators mentioned something about how different GDP statistics are picked as headlines in different parts of the world and that markets are more influenced by whichever stat uh, is made the headline than the others. Uh, This focus on headline numbers then moved the conversation towards, should companies be reporting earnings every quarter? Why not semi-annual or annual? Do you guys have any thoughts on this? Is the risk of insider trading too great? Would this add too much volatility? Would it promote longer holding periods? Would it impact how the companies themselves are run? or just how investors react to them? Uh, A lot of great questions in there. First, uh, I checked with Lawrence Greenberg, our chief legal counsel here at The Fool, and Lawrence was not sure whether this was part of the way the SEC was first set up as an act of Congress, or if this was one of the rules implemented by the SEC. And what I'm referring to is the requirement for public companies to report every quarter. Uh, Depending on where that rule exists, it would require either the SEC or the United States Congress to change it. 
Um, but I think, regard, you know, and since it's probably safe to assume they're not going to change that anytime soon, I think the last question Marco uh, wrote is maybe the best one to kick around the idea that, w- let's say for the sake of argument, that it was changed and companies are just reporting earnings twice a year or even just once a year. Would that change? Do you think that would change how they're run? Or just how we as investors react to them. Let's go twice well, a year. Let's yeah. say every six months, companies are coming out. So I, yeah, I mean, I think so. In regard to quarterly reporting, I mean, this is something that was tightened up with Sarbanes Oxley back in 2002 or so, where beyond just quarterly reporting, it was required that the company's executives had to, you know, uh, basically certify and approve the integrity of these, of these reports. And so I think they've been reporting quarterly since like 1930 or something. But I, I think that so if if they reported twice a year or even just once a year I mean I think that what we would find very quickly is we would find the really you know the good the good companies would would, would rise above and really the 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 bad ones would become more and more blatantly obvious because over the course of a year a lot of things can go wrong right I mean in the course of 90 days we're not going to see really anything devastating or dramatic that would that would you know take a company out, you know, I mean, it, it, but but by the same token, quarterly reports you can start to put together trends and at least see trends in numbers to get a better idea of sort of where things are going. So, I mean, you know, we because we take such a long term approach to investing and we view it through the through the lens of years. Uh, I, I mean, we don't really, I mean, we cover these earnings uh, reports because we need to, and and it, you know, we we learn more about the companies. But by the same token, yeah, you know, we we don't really. Find them to be all that necessary. I mean, when when you see those earnings reports that are just kind of standard, here's just the state of affairs of the business. You know, no BS. You know, the conference calls are relatively straightforward. Uh, those those tend to be you know the ones we we like more than more than the ones that are really convoluted and, and big headline makers. And I and I think that today, much more than than 20 years ago, because of technology and things like Twitter and just you know the internet in general. These headlines hit very quickly. Investors react very quickly, and, and tend, they tend to overreact because you can't. If an earnings report comes out at four oh five after the market closes, you can. There's no way you can process what has happened over the course of those ninety days in the, the three to five minutes that that you then see the stock go one way or the other in aftermarket trading. And so it's an expectations game, yada yada yada. No big deal there. I think personally, I look at these quarterly earnings reports and I view them as more opportunities for us uh, because I know that I'm buying into these companies that I, I want to hold for many, many years. Uh, overreactions can, can tend to present opportunities and that's the way I view them. I don't know that we'll see any change to the quarterly reporting. Yeah. I don't think we will. Um, I think that you know that's it's just what Wall Street wants and what Wall Street expects, and the SEC will continue to to let that let that be the way it is. But um, but yeah, I, I mean, I also think that if you went to whether it's every six months or every year, it would remove uh, some of the stuff that you see on the fringes. And the the first example that popped in my mind is retailers who. Uh, and, and I don't begrudge them for doing this, but retailers who will talk about a given quarter, and if results are a little bit lower than they were hoping, if the calendar works in their favor, they say, "Well, you know, this this quarter 
had one fewer weekend in it <laughs> and then compared to the quarter a year ago and that's you know and it's stuff like that would I think be pushed to the side yeah and I mean also think about uh, how many how many times do we go go one of these podcasts during earnings season and give them a hard time about using the weather as an excuse right, right. I mean, it just seems like there's always something in and it's just you know the more opportunity they have to get out there and sort of use an excuse or tout something or you know rebut an expectation. I mean, it's it's just going to provide I think more uncertainty and more overreactions one way or the other. And and that's that can be good. That can be bad. I mean, at the end of the day, you know we're we're not jumping in willy nilly on these companies. I mean, that's the, that's the beauty of of bottom up investing, right? Looking at these businesses for what they are, the foundations, the leadership, their market opportunities, understanding them as businesses, not sort of tools of of Wall Street, you know, expectations. And uh, and so yeah, again, I mean, I think that earnings season more than anything, I look at it as a great uh, chance to you know find some good opportunities out there to add some some of your favorite companies thanks to some short sighted overreactions. I I do think that one downside of moving to something where companies are reporting every six months or once a year, I think the downside for investors is you don't get to really examine management as often. Right. I think it's telling when how a company handles criticism, how a company handles conference calls, handles tough questions. I I personally enjoy the fact, maybe enjoy is overstating, I like the fact that the leaders of the companies that I am a part owner of have to show up every three months and answer questions about how they're running the business. And you, you, you do see, I mean, we have seen and will continue to see examples of uh, leaders who are thin-skinned uh, or, uh, to go in the other direction, who are able to give really coherent answers as to why they missed. I don't want to just put it all on the CEO. Some of the, some of the questions that analysts ask on these calls are given you know given a particular situation some of the questions are pretty stupid oh they're very bad i mean there should be like a soup nazi clause there that if an analyst asks a stupid question they could just say no answer for you next question right. you know what i mean because some of those questions are awful and i mean look at some of the one of our favorite businesses out there Berkshire Hathaway i mean they'll file their they'll file their 10q the quarterly report but they they're not doing an earnings call right. so i mean you know we we get what we get from Warren and company at the end of the year in the, in the form of a great shareholder letter in, in an invitation to an annual meeting if you own shares but but he doesn't play that game because he knows that they don't they don't need to and and we know what to expect from them from the very get go and, and i i would love to see more companies take that you know as an example because to me I, I agree with you totally I think it's it's a great way to get to learn more about management by listening to them on those calls quarter in and quarter out but by the same token uh, you can also learn a lot from management just just by seeing how effectively they run the business you know how how good of communicators they are uh, even just uh, even just through uh, you know contact once per year. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.